0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and I thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Imagine for a moment if you had dropped in from outer space and found the most powerful nation on earth had in its midst a lawmaker who espoused the executing of the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who trafficked in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and who also thought school shootings, tragic school shootings across America, were staged. You'd think you were watching a demented sitcom, or maybe something even worse. Sad to say, you'd be wrong. For proof, look no further than Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. Her day of reckoning for all this lunacy came as the House voted to strip her of two committee assignments. It should be noted that such assignments are the means by which legislators get bills introduced and passed in Congress which might lead you to question whether or not she can actually be an effective legislator. Maybe that's not her end game, but we'll get to that in a minute. She had been given places on the education and budget committees by her enabler, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He did so knowing what her views are, and aside from a weak statement disavowing her public pronouncements, he was prepared to let her slide the vote to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene was 230-199, to 199, with a paltry 11 Republicans voting against her. This is another example of the GOP, not just McCarthy, but the GOP, enabling a woman whose stated views are well beyond bizarre. Marjorie Taylor Greene had her day in court on the House floor. She expressed some regret for her most repugnant statements, saying she now believes the school shootings she disparaged before were real. She disavowed QAnon back in 2018 and that no, a Jewish banking family was not responsible for the wildfires in California by way of a space laser. She now says that's not who she is, which would lead a sane, rational person to ask, well, just who are you? Kevin McCarthy said in her defense that her statements were made before she was elected to Congress and that the actions of Democrats in stripping her of committee memberships could set a dangerous precedent. And yes, having the majority party dictate committee assignments for the other party is unprecedented. Yet having a sitting member of your body espouse murdering that body speaker is also unprecedented. Ironically, the media-tied face to that of Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, whose decision to vote in favor of impeaching Donald Trump jeopardized her role as the number three Republican in the House. She survived that one, and the margin wasn't even close. So let's see now. One was an attempt to punish someone for disloyalty or perceived disloyalty. The other was a response to hate speech, At the end of the day, it's about the soul of the Republican Party, now and for the future. The GOP has shown no collective interest in standing up to extremism, and there's really only one reason why. His name is Donald Trump, so afraid of congressional Republicans of the power of his supporters that they seem to be willing to tolerate almost anything, anything avoid having to face a Trump-endorsed candidate in a primary next year. It's the living, breathing embodiment of cowardice, no matter how they try to dress it up. With all their bluster about standing up for America, these punks are lying down. And another thing, Democrats need to shun and shame Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Marjorie Taylor Greens in their midst. If it was me, I wouldn't stay in the same room with this woman unless I had to. It also means that centrist Democrats need to stand behind people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when Green lies and said she advocated punching cops. Standing as one in the face of hate isn't, I don't think, too much to ask. As for Republican attempts to push Democrats off committees, let them try it. Those are nothing but empty threats. And I'll tell you another set of empty threats as well, uh, because I heard Rand Paul talking about, well, uh, Maxine Waters said this, and this one said this, and Kamala Harris did this, and now trying to pin what obviously were some whack statements by a Republican, now they're trying to pin it on Democrats. That, too, is an empty threat and nonsense, pure and simple. So, you might ask, how has Green responded to her committee's removal? The same way her idol Donald Trump would have, by doubling down on her craziness, calling Democrats morons, and trying her best to keep the spotlight on, guess who, her. This is pure Donald Trump. It's all about her, and this started well before she came to Congress. Some of you might have seen the video of her harassing a Parkland shooting survivor and yelling at him, talking about the media spotlight he was at that point getting, and then saying she wasn't getting enough. Therein lies the soul of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And believe me, if anybody, I don't care if it would be Democrats, young people, environmentalists, or whomever, started following her around and harassing. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the way she harassed this poor young man, she'd be going crazy and publicly being crazy. And by the way, trying to raise money off the same thing, because that's what she's trying to do now. She's trying to portray herself as a victim and say, send me some money so I can get elected again to act like an idiot again. However, The best that can be hoped for in Marjorie Taylor Greene's case is that the people in her district will see sense and elect a rational person to take her place. That alone, however, will not solve the problems of the Republican Party. Selling your soul to wield power is at best a zero-sum game. The Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world don't yet seem to know this. With any luck, they'll find out soon. I must admit I'm torn here on a couple of levels. I mean, part of me says, let the Republicans destroy themselves in the aftermath of Trumpism. I'm clear about the fact that what would normally be the lunatic fringe of the GOP is now its new normal. And Democrats politically ought to take advantage of that. Yet, there's part of me that yearns for a rational, sane opposition you know, people you can debate and argue ideas with, you know, like used to happen back in the day. I've done this with many Republicans over the years, and I've come to respect some of them, those who have rejected the groping, material, acquisitive world of Donald Trump. I'm not at all sure that the future of the Republican Party isn't the world of space lasers and false flag events. It seems to make many of those in the Republican Party who follow and are slavishly devoted to Donald Trump, it seems to make them very comfortable. Certainly makes me uncomfortable. Up next, the New York Times was provided a glimpse into the shadowy world of tracking people through their smartphones. Law enforcement is using the technology to track people who rioted at the Capitol. But what does it mean for the rest of us? Stay with us this is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Have we totally sacrificed our right to privacy at the altar of technology. Now, I've been saying this for a while. I've been asking this question for a while. But a recent New York Times article would seem to answer hell yes. And it was, for me, a very, very chilling article. Now, this is not new. People have been warning about tech surveillance of ordinary people for a while now. Yet the New York Times piece while focusing on the tracking of the January 6th rioters in Washington, opens a window that quite frankly gives me the creeps. Now, maybe it doesn't give you the creeps, but it definitely makes me nervous, makes me wonder, gives me pause. The Times came into possession of digital files containing the information and location of 12 million smartphones. This data was from 2016 and 2017 and they got it in 2019. It was collected by smartphone apps and then fed, in the Times words, through a dizzyingly complex digital ecosystem then harvested as a form of currency by digital marketers. Imagine your movements are money, just not for you. Now using this technology to trace the insurrectionists who tried to destroy democracy is a laudable undertaking. Don't get me wrong about that. Using it to trace when I go to the supermarket so that someone can try and sell me something is a lot less noble. And I do mean a lot less noble. Now, again, I've been talking about this for a while, and not so much the smartphone thing. I didn't know that they were tracking 12 million people and 12, I should say 12 million smartphones, and what the people who own them do. Now, it's it's creepy, folks. There's something wrong with this picture. You know, law enforcement, if properly using this technology, can bring lawbreakers to justice. I don't particularly have a problem with that. Keep in mind that most Americans have smartphone apps that allowed data harvesting without people even knowing it. So much for the right to privacy. And the buying and selling of such information is largely unregulated. And I'm not sure most Americans even know that part. In other words, it's not technically against the law to do this stuff. Again, in the context of the capital attack, law enforcement is being provided a powerful tool in bringing those responsible to justice. But I have to ask, would people feel the same way? I know I wouldn't if that same technology was used and and might well have been used against Black Lives Matter or Extinction Rebellion. Sure, they didn't storm the Capitol, but how do we know the same surveillance isn't, in fact, being used against peaceful protest groups? I think the answer to that is, quite frankly, we don't but let's leave that part of it alone for a minute if most of you were like me you've experienced online browsing for certain items only to be bombarded with ads for those same items for days afterwards and you know when this first happened to me i said what the hell is going on here i browsed for you know an office chair or you know some other mundane item and next thing you know I'm getting all of these ads, whether it be on Facebook or whatever, saying, you know, we have this, shop now. Or we have this, learn more. You've all seen this. You've all experienced it. And, you know, at first, I I couldn't figure out how they did it. Now I know a little bit better. Mind you, in most cases, I don't buy anything. It's not like I actually went and bought it. The fact is, they tracked me When I looked at buying it, not when I bought it and somebody was wise to the fact that I was looking. I was told when I asked about this, that this is the marketing use of algorithms to monetize access to me and millions of other people who use smartphones and their apps. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that you can ban this sort of thing, you know, toothpaste out of the tube and all that. But is there a way to legally rein in what could be a privacy-free future? Let's hope so, since I really don't want everyone or everything I think about or what I think about buying to make money for somebody else. Can you imagine if people really knew the extent to which this goes on and perhaps jumping up and saying to people, wait a minute, you can't do that. You can't make money off my thoughts. But the fact is, they are. The fact is, they got these algorithms and I'm not really clear as to the literal definition of algorithms, but maybe it just doesn't matter at a certain point. But I know, and I think most of you know, that there's something, a ghost in the machine that is using your info to make money for themselves. They harvest this data, and then they sell it off to marketers, to surveillance people, to whomever. And the, the creepy thing about the Times piece uh, regarding the January 6th rioters was that they actually had these little digital pings that showed when some of these people left their homes, how they got to Washington, and every single stop they made along the way. Gas stations, hotels if they were traveling long distance, all of these different things. And then you start to think, okay, well, yeah, bring those folks to justice. But what happens when they start figuring out where you've gone or where I've gone? or when normal, law-abiding, ordinary Americans have gone and they start pinging. And all that data goes into a system that uses algorithms to figure out what your habits are. You know, and and some people, (laughs) I almost said some of us, but some people have habits that they don't want people to know about. Is that now impossible? Is that now implausible? Does it make sense to say that people still, in this day and age, have any right to privacy whatsoever? And do companies and other data miners, data harvesters, do they have an inalienable right to make money off of us? Just a question. I'd like to know what you think. Leave me a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Finally, in this episode of The Intersection, to vax or not to vax? That is my question. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to this edition of The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thanks again for listening to this episode. You know, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I am very, very nervous around the presence of needles. I hate them. I can't stand them. I don't like them when somebody starts to shoot novocaine in my mouth, I don't like them when they stick them in my arm. And it's not like they're like torturously painful. It's just the sight of a needle drives me nuts. And it leads me to ask, because, you know, we're now in a situation where people all over the world are being vaccinated against COVID-19. What's the difference between honest skepticism and disinformation when it comes to these coronavirus vaccines? And there are several of them available to people as we speak. It's an important distinction because there appears to be some hesitancy to getting vaccinated in some surprising places. And this has nothing to do with needles. Uh, I will uh, grant people, I'm going to get vaccinated even though I do, in fact, hate needles. But there is some hesitancy and it is surprisingly strong hesitancy in some surprising places. We'll get to that. Uh, in a minute, we ought to start by saying, however, that there has been resistance to vaccines since the beginning of vaccines. Despite the huge loss of life during the flu epidemic of 1918, there were vaccine doubters then, too. Then, as now, some people believe that vaccination will become compulsory. Not that anybody has said that, but people say vaccines are the first step towards some kind of compulsory vaccination that people may not want. Now, it's gonna be true as we move forward with vaccines that air travelers and other people, people that work in nursing homes, et cetera, they may need to be required to get vaccinated in order to fly or in order to care for people who might be vulnerable. And I mean, really, really vulnerable. And there's been a huge loss of life all over the world in nursing homes or what they call in Britain care homes. So there may be some kind of requirement down the road, if there's not already, that air travelers and certain key workers must get vaccines to continue to do their jobs. However, right now, there is no compulsory vaccination of the larger population. Now as seems to be the case with a lot of issues lately. There's disinformation out there, especially on social media. And I don't wanna make social media the whipping boy here, but social media has expanded people's ability to spread disinformation. One school of thought, which has been endorsed by the way, by a number of celebrities, is that the 5G radio frequency is somehow linked the COVID. It's been widely disproved, but that has not stopped the spread of this theory. Social media has also been the principal means of transmission, meaning it's going to be difficult to stop that spread. How does science win an argument with people who say the virus is deliberately constructed, that it's a weapon to control the world's population, and who won't pay any attention to facts presented to them to the contrary. Then there are people in some communities of color who point to the genocidal Tuskegee experiment. Keep in mind, that cruel experiment lasted for 40 years, and I'm not sure most Americans know this. The Tuskegee experiment began in 1932 and lasted until 1972, even after people knew that there were different, because when in 1932, there was no known cure for syphilis. So they decided, the government decided, to take 400-odd black men and give them syphilis and track the results of syphilis. And they did not give them any kind of cure, medication, mediation, or much of anything else. And after 40 years, the results were utterly devastating. Now, you know, people, some people who are anti-vax are anti-vax because they have studied that history. And by the way, the Tuskegee experiment was a gigantic act of barbarism, not by private industry, but by the government of the United States. So when black people start saying, you know, I'm not sure I really trust, that's a good deal of the reason why. Keep in mind, they did not go tell those black men back in 1932, hey, we're going to give you syphilis and we're going to watch you die. They didn't say that. You know, they really kind of, sort of just said, we're going to do this, that, and the other, and we're going to see how this turns out. And it's not really going to harm you. And now, in 2021, people are being told, Black people are being told, well, we have these vaccines and they're going to help you. They're not going to harm you. And people are nervous. What has surprised me, and uh, you know, because I worked for a great healthcare union for a few years, is the number of people who are caregivers, who work in care nursing homes, who work in hospitals, who are very nervous about this vaccine. Some of them even say they won't take it. In numbers like 30%, 35%, in some cases, as high as 40%. And you know, um, people communicate with each other. Even during lockdowns, even when they can't get together, they communicate. And trust me, if you're a regular, ordinary working person, and somebody you know who works in healthcare, who works as a, a licensed practical nurse or who works as a caregiver in a nursing home, and they tell you, well, you know what? I'm not sure I'm gonna take this vaccine. When they tell you that, you pause. You think, well, if this one isn't taking it and they work in healthcare, why should I take it? I understand that that's not the same as saying 5G is the cause of the coronavirus, or that the coronavirus is a hoax, which is another piece of disinformation that is spread through social media. It is no surprise at all, to me anyway, that some people are gonna exhibit a healthy degree of skepticism toward public health officials and vaccines. And by the way, calling people names for asking questions is no way to convince them To get inoculated, nor is calling them ignorant a viable way to do that. There are always going to be people who cannot be reached with logical arguments. I know some of them are friends of mine. I hope for their sake they're able to keep safe and the coronavirus doesn't touch them or their loved ones. In the meantime, I'm counting the days, counting down the days until I get that email or that phone call or that letter saying it's my time to get vaccinated. It's not going to be all that long from now either. I'm going to do it because I believe that the benefits outweigh the risks. And I understand the risks. I understand the history. But I'm going to do it anyway because I don't want anybody that I love to get COVID-19. Much for taking the time to listen the executive producer of the intersection is Ms. kim jack riley music is by eric Lund. until we meet again please be safe and be well